I invite you to take your Bibles and open with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 8. We'll study verses 12 through 17. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery... To fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord, may he inscribe its eternal truths upon our hearts and stir in us a holy joy to the honor of his name. Let us pray again. Father in heaven, you hold us in your hands. You know us intimately in ways that we don't even know ourselves and you have perceived every need of the hearts of all of your creatures those who glorify you and know your son and also even those that curse you and deny you lord as we come to your word once more this morning we pray that you would minister to us by the power of the holy spirit that you would confirm us in the grace of Jesus Christ by an increased faith and an overwhelming sincerity as we cling to the one who was sacrificed for us. Lord, we ask also that you would rule over us. We admit to you that there are some of us that are here this morning, that though we have professed faith, Lord, we are walking as if we are not your children. There are some here this morning who have every intention to resist your word and who will attempt also to deny all of its truth. We ask, O Lord, for your subduing grace. O Lord, that your hand would be upon those who are wayward to bring them back as if wayward sheep, far and distant from your flock. O Lord, that they may know your care and also your keeping. Lord, we pray this and submit it to you, the Lord of heaven, the keeper of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come again to Romans chapter 8, this is, of course, one of the wonderful and most blessed chapters of Scripture. The Apostle Paul is writing to Christians, and it is for our encouragement in Christ. It is for our strength to grow in holiness. It is for our assurance 
in the face of sanctification so that we would know that truly we belong to him. And so I want to give you a brief synopsis. This doesn't originate as a synopsis with me, but rather from Ligon Duncan. And I want to direct you to verses 1, 2, 5, 9, and 11 to give you a condensed snapshot of what Paul is aiming at us to understand, to take, and to base our faith in from this chapter of Scripture. So, verses 1, 2, 5, 9, and 11. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If the spirit of him who was raised, Jesus, from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul is writing to Christians. He is telling you who you are in Christ. You are a spiritual people, those whom the Lord has not only given a dismembered helper to, but rather placed the Holy Spirit in us as an indwelling advocate, as one who disciples us, as a minister, and takes us not to a strange spirituality but rather to Jesus Christ. And friends, our identity, who we are, then always, inevitably, and in every situation, tells us who we are to be. Our identity forms our responsibility. They are not separate. They cannot be divorced one from the other. If you are a Christian, you are called to live in the light of that grace. And that means many things. And as the Apostle Paul writes to us this morning in verses 12 through 17, he touches upon that, that our identity bears up responsibility in the life of the Christian. First point of our sermon in verses 12 and 13, the obligation to mortification. The obligation to mortification. Verses 14 through 16, the contours of sonship. The contours of sonship. And then in verse 17, the reality of inheritance. The reality of inheritance. And so we come to verse 12. And something that I want to say from the very beginning is that verse 12 naturally and substantially 
is wed with verse 11. They go together. Without verse 11, you don't understand verse 12. It makes perfect sense. The sentence preceding gives meaning to the sentence following. And so I want to direct your attention and read it very briefly because everything in verse 12 relies upon the central truth of verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Apostle Paul is saying that if you are a Christian, you have received the Holy Spirit And the Holy Spirit is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And that is a promise that every Christian enjoys. And you are a Christian. That is what frames verse 12. So that he can say in verse 12, so then. Or because of. Brothers. You see, right in the beginning of verse 12, he identifies who you are. You're his brothers. And how can you be his brothers? You and I, of natural descent, don't come from whoever it is was the physical human father of Paul. We are united with him spiritually. That's what Paul is teaching us. And Paul is assuming something about you and about me and about everybody that testifies to having faith in Jesus. And that is that we are united to him and linked one to another as a spiritual family. Our identity is in him. We are together a people outlined by his grace. A people united by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul can call you brethren. You're not just anybody, and you're also not an unbeliever. And that's something so clear that I want to point out to you, is that this passage is not talking about somebody who is apart from faith. This is not instructions for how to become a Christian. These are instructions of now that you are a Christian, how do you live as a Christian? Okay? That is entirely important. You are a Christian. You are Paul's brethren, brothers in Christ with him. And this is something also important for us to note. That this is a sincere communion. This isn't sort of a membership in a club or a fine. This isn't a hobby. This isn't a weekend activity. Something that you decided you wanted to join a group of hobbyist remote control airplane flyers. If you've never seen one of those in a park, you might be tempted to go and join one if you were to look it up or to see it around and about on any given Saturday in Stuttgart. This isn't a hobby. This isn't something that you do for fun as a Christian. You don't come to church and do church on one day of a week and then put it up whenever you're tired with it or you don't have time for it. This is every day, just as every day your physical brother or sister does not stop to be your brother and sister just when you're a little bit irritated with them. In my household, that is so painfully plain. Most days of the week, my sons beat me up in the morning. They don't beat me up, they awake before me. Let me say it that way, to be more clear. Maybe they do beat me up, I don't know. 
but I hear them fighting and beating one another up. Haddon, stop doing that to me. Benjamin, stop it, stop it. That's like the most common phrase. They are tired of one another, yet they remain as brothers. They live under the household together. And at times, one might run to the top of the house and the other to the basement to get away from each other. But their bond of fellowship as brothers does not dissolve. That's the same for every Christian. It does not dissolve. Your identity isn't taken up and put down. It is not a weekend activity. It's not something that is casual. It's who we are. And it carries responsibilities for what we are to be doing. So again, in verse 12, Paul continues, and he says that we are, in the ESV, debtors. In the New American Standard, we are under obligation. We are debtors as Christians. We are under obligation. And the way he explains this, this idea of being debtors or obligated, he does it in a unique way. It's probably not how you or I would speak. He does it in a negative format. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And so the first thing he wants to simply say to you is that Christian, brother, sister in Christ, you are obligated, but it is not to the sinful desires of your flesh. You owe obedience, but it is not to your desires. It is not to your taste. It is not to what you want. That's not what you are owing. That is not what you are obligated to. That's a weird way to say it. You may be asking, well then, what is our obligation? If we're under obligation and debtors owing to the Lord that we don't live a life that carries on in fleshly desires, if we don't live a life dominated by sin and controlled by sin and directed in everything we say, think, or do by sin, then what is our obligation? What are the things we are to be doing? What do we owe to the Lord? Well, verse 13, he outlines it to you and to me. We are obligated, and that obligation expressed under these two headings in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We've heard Paul say this kind of thing before. He said something very similar in verse 6 of chapter 8. You want to look back and read over that. That's perfectly fine. But these two correlating inviolable truths of the Christian life never change. And here they are. These are the two things that make up this obligation or this lifestyle that we are called to live before the Lord. The first portion, the first truth is this. If you are living according to the flesh, you must or you will die. The infinitive. If you live according to sinful desires, according to the flesh, 
You must, you will die. That's the first truth. That sin leads to death. The second truth, this makes up the positive outline of your and my obligation, our debt to the Lord, is this. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Stated more briefly, if you live in sinful desires, it will kill you. But if you by the Spirit put those things to death, you will live. It's life and death. It's a stark contrast. There's not anything in the middle. It's one or the other. Sin leads to death, and if you don't kill sin, you're going to die. You, Christian, are obligated, called, and owe the Lord your putting to death sin by and through the help of the Holy Spirit. Who you are indicates how you should and must live. It's life or death. We have the famous quote of John Owen. Kill sin or it will kill you. Kill sin or it will kill you. This is not optional. This is essential to the Christian life. It's essential to the Christian life. That you put your sin to death. That you are in constant warfare and succeeding over the things that your flesh would desire. The things that are contrary to God's will. The things that would be what your flesh, your taste, your eyes, your hands would delight to do. But the Lord says never to do. You're to be engaged in killing it. To mortify it. To be a man or a woman or a boy or a girl that is always at work mortifying sin. Putting it to death so that you will live in Christ Jesus. And you're hearing that and you say, well, pastor, that's serious. I understand that. Life and death, that's as serious as it gets, isn't it? But that's hard If I'm honest with you, I like what I like. I like my sin. Every one of us in the room, if we were to be asked the question, do we like our sin, we are obligated, if we're honest, to raise our hands and say, oh yes, I love my sins. You love, just as I love, to fly into fits of rage and anger. You love the taste of your eyes and your tongue, and your hands, and all of your body to look and to engage in unfaithful things, whether in relationship against a spouse or in spiritual relationship where you entertain the lies of hell, Satan, and the world, or false religions. You love those things. It's hard. And you say to me, but pastor, it's so hard. This seems like it's so deep in me. That I can't get rid of it. It's just a desire. I can't help it. I was born this way. Pastor, you just don't understand. 
And Paul says, yeah, friend, yes, I do understand. I was born that way too. Yeah, friend, you're right. It is incredibly hard to kill sin. It is so hard that you are right. You can say, I can't do it by myself. And he says, friend, Christian, my brother, my sister, you are not alone in this. You are not alone in this call. You are not alone in this obligation to put your sin to death. Look again at verse 13. For if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body you will live. Jesus didn't leave you alone for the sanctification of your soul or for the killing of sin. You're not alone. It is hard. You are in fallen flesh. He gave His Son to pay the penalty and then He sent His Holy Spirit to be a helper and a friend to teach you how to do warfare. To give you power when you're exhausted in the fight with your sin. To give strength to your hand to succeed. Let me be very clear though, however, friend. You have a helper. You have a friend. But it isn't only the Spirit's work that mortifies sin. Paul didn't say, kill your sin or it'll be killing you. He didn't only say, through the Spirit or by the Spirit... But he puts the indicative on you. You are to be at work daily fighting the battle, sharpening the sword, swinging the axe, chopping the tree, digging up the root and killing sin and burning it. And you're not alone and you're not hopeless Christian. And you come and you talk and you talk to one another. You talk to ministers and you complain and you say, I can't overwhelm this. You can't, but you're not alone. If you were alone, you'd be powerless. But you're not because you have the Holy Spirit. Someone who constantly testifies to the word of truth. Who constantly raises your hand. Who constantly engages with you. Who puts the sword in your hand whenever Satan would say, come and do this so that you can strike him down. You're not alone and you need to get to work and you need to be actively working as a Christian to put your sin to death. Again, this isn't how you become a Christian. This isn't how you stay a Christian. This is what you do because you are a Christian. You kill sin. You don't just put it in a closet. You don't just forgive yourself and forget about it. You're to be doing the work of killing it and putting it to death so that you may live. We go on and in verses 14 through 16, Paul describes to us the contours of sonship. The contours of sonship. All the different shapes, all the different parts, all these wonderful aspects, the colors of the painting of what it means to be a child of God. That's what he's describing to us. And as you come to verse 14, we jump from killing sin directly 
into a different sort of passage. And it's very natural that you go from the obligation to kill sin to then this wonderful doctrine of being the children of God. And you say, but pastor, it just seems disjointed. It's hard for me to understand this. Well, let me describe it for you a little bit, why Paul does what he does. If you're a Christian and you're pursuing your sin and you're waging war with your sin, let me tell you this, if you're good at it and by the Holy Spirit, you will be equipped for it, you're going to know your enemy. And your enemy is the sin of your own heart. You're going to be so confronted with your sin that you may do what countless Christians have done as they have waged war against sin and seen their sin so clearly and had the light cast on it so they can see where to plunge the sword and see where to engage with it that they then think to themselves, I'm overwhelmed by how sinful I am. I am completely cast down because of the full weight of it. I don't even know if I can do this. And they doubt and they get cast into despair. And the very thing that the Holy Spirit is using them to do well, the, whole, the horrible pit of hell and Satan tries to whisper in your ears, if you see this sin in your life, you cannot possibly be a Christian. Paul knows that. Paul says of all Christians, he himself is the foremost amongst us all. And so he writes, verse 14, so that we're held in the hands of God, even knowing how sinful we are. So that we're in the grip and the embrace of the Lord while we wage war with our sins. Because you will never need this in your ears more profoundly that you belong to the God of heaven than when you are on the field of battle in your soul against the things that Satan would be pleased that you would continue to indulge in. You need verses 14 through 16, that's why it's here. I need verses 14 through 16 so that when I see my sin, I don't write myself off and say, my God... If that is possible for that to be who I am, my God, how can I be yours? And so Paul writes, verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That is a very definitive verse of Scripture. Defines who you are. All who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. The existential truth of who a Christian is. If you're led by the Spirit, you don't only belong to God, but you're his children. And you may ask the question, well, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? And I want to just say from square one, he doesn't mean spiritual feelings. We've already talked about a false spirituality in past weeks. Or spiritual feelings or a false spirituality can mean a whole bunch of things. Connection with creation, nature, all this sort of thing. Being spiritual, that's not what he means. You may as a Christian ask the good question. Does this mean, in essence, what we're told in John 16, 13 about the Holy Spirit leading us into all the truth? He does lead us into all the truth. That's absolutely true. This doesn't 
teach differently than that, or at least against that. It does teach a different thing, I believe. So the Holy Spirit does lead you into all truth. This also isn't just a general leading of the Holy Spirit. So that you say, well, I don't know what I need to do tomorrow, but I'm going to pray about it. I don't know what I need to do about this job, but I'm going to pray about it. Or this different thing or that different thing. You're looking for the leading of the Spirit. Good, natural, right thing for a Christian to do. No, friends, I think this is specific, and I think the context demands it, okay? Because verse 13 comes before verse 14. I think this specifically refers to the Holy Spirit who is leading and helping you in your battle against sin. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This verse to mean... For all who are led by the Spirit of God against their sin, waging war and killing sin, are sons of God. I think that's clear. I do think it's clear from the text. You may disagree. You say, well, I want it word by word. Well, I can give you verse by verse. And why I want to say that this is so central and why he's, well... Speaking about this is very specifically, and it's this, that nobody grieves over their own sin, nor is anybody involved in or active killing sin in their hearts who are not themselves helped by the Holy Spirit. You hear what I'm saying? Unconverted people do not feel grief over sinning against the God of heaven. They don't. They don't care. It doesn't weigh on them. They don't look to the Lord for help. They don't grieve over sin. They don't feel guilty for their unholiness. Now that's not to say that the world, even apart from Christ, can't look on injustice and moan at the injustice of many tragedies in the world. People can do that. But the grief that you engage in over your own sinfulness, over your own heart, the thing in your chest at the very root of your affections, you don't do that, you don't feel bad over that if you are not being led by the Holy Spirit. That's revealed by Him. That's part of His work. If you have the Holy Spirit and He is doing this work in you, then friend, you are certainly a child of God. Paul is saying that if you are engaged in spiritual warfare, if you're killing sin so that you may live, and you're feeling the struggle with it, you're feeling grief over it, you know that you're engaged in it, it is evidence that yes, you do belong to the Lord of heaven. That's what he's saying. I've said this to some of you in our church before. Struggling with assurance. And Paul is saying it to you again. Only Christians grieve over sin. And if you grieve over sin, it's evidence that you're in Christ. Doesn't mean you have great success. It doesn't mean that you've known every victory. But it, however, does indicate that there is someone in you opening eyes, softening hearts, and giving power in the great fight of the soul of every Christian in this life, anticipating the day of glory where we'll be free from sin. 
You go on and in verse 15, Paul continues to describe this wonderful sonship. There's a little bit of a pivot here where he's already talked about us being children of God. And so look at verse 15 uh, with me. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. Simply, Paul is saying that as you were called to fight your sin, you're not going back into a heavy labor of slavery. God is not telling you to measure up this high or you're not in his kingdom. It's not a spirit of slavery. That's not who the Holy Spirit is. Rather, he is at work in you confirming that you are a child of God. He's the spirit of adoption. He is the one who loves you and who draws you near to the Lord. Just like if a a child was to be lost in a crowd. Think of it with me for a moment. Maybe it's Fruling's Fest. Maybe it's something else. And you're there and you have a child and you're a parent. Or maybe you are the child. And for a moment you look down and you look around and you look up and where's mom and dad? And there's a panic. And police officers have a keen ear to a crying child saying, where's my mommy? Where's my daddy? And so then they lead the child back to the parent. There is something of this in the Holy Spirit. The helper, his advocacy, that the Holy Spirit brings you near to the Father, draws you near to him and into his arms so that you look into his face and you know him. And you're not distracted and you're not overwhelmed and your sins are not telling you that you're not his, but rather the Holy Spirit is constantly telling you, you belong to the Lord You're his, you're his child. You're not just his subject. You're not just under his thumb. You are at his table, one of his children, beloved. That's what he's saying. Moreover, he says that in that relationship with the Father, that we cry out, Abba, Father. What does that mean? We hear this, uh, Paul writes again in Galatians 4, 6, almost the same words, if you or to look at Galatians 4, 6, you'd see how consistent Paul is with his theology. But I dare say you're most familiar with this from Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, 36. Jesus crying out in Gethsemane. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will overwhelmed with grief, looking at the cost of sin, understanding and perceiving what God is going to do to him on the cross. And in his humanity, he is shaken. And in his prayer, he cries out, Abba, Father. And so let's focus for a minute in light of Jesus' use of this language that informs Paul, that tells Paul what it means so that you can understand it too. And some of you, I'm sure, you've heard people, they pray and they're very spiritual. And maybe some of you have done this and I don't throw stones. But you say, Abba, Daddy. And you think it's such an informal, impersonal, or a personal kind of address to the Lord. And I want to say that it isn't informal. 
It's actually a misunderstanding of the verse and of the word and of the use of it. It's not just Aramaic for daddy. It is an intimate term. It does uh, mean uh, really a, a term of affection or endearment to the Lord. Certainly it does. But it's even more than that. It's a term that Jesus uses in the depth of his soul while he grieves over his coming obedience. Abba is a term for the Father that foreshadows a life lived in suffering obedience. Jesus isn't having an informal moment. He is saying, Lord, remove this cup from me Father, yet not what I will, but what you will. Father, you know me, you love me, you've called me near. And I look at the life ahead of me and I look at how short it is and the struggle that I'm going to have. And for the Lord, he's saying, I'm looking ahead at the cross and at the nails, at the scourging, at the cries and the groan of grief. And Father, I love you. And I'm willing to take anything. But from the depth of my soul, Lord, will you take this from me? And if you won't, I will submit to you. It is the language of obedience and intimacy with the Father. And so Paul can say that through the spirit of adoption, as you live a life putting to death sin, and the desires of the flesh, that in the grief of your obedience, as it is hard, as it is messy, you have in every way the right to cry out to the Lord, Abba, Father, for help in time of need, as you endeavor to be obedient to his will, not your own. Have that correction sink in. Because I think that idea is so much more helpful than just a snuggly and spiritual feeling of someone that is a heavenly and spiritual God, a God of all power, that you would prefer to call Daddy. Then in verse 16, we continue on, and Paul has in view more of this same theme, and that is the assurance of the Christian as a child of God. Verse 16, he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And that is something that, again, every Christian, if they're really waging war with sin, is going to struggle with and struggle over assurance. Again, it's because they are looking at their sin. You will have to face it and look at it in all of its ugliness if you're going to strike it down. And you're going to come out maybe even on the other side of it after 20, 30, 50 years of walking with Christ with the battle scars of sanctification. And I have met Christians 70, 80 years old preparing for the grave still struggling over the question, do I belong to the Father? And they look over their life and they say, I failed here, I failed here, I failed here, I failed here. I love Jesus, but how do I, how do I know this? Well, Apostle Paul speaks again and he gives two aspects, two testimonies to our being children of God, to our assurance. 
The first of them, verse 16, is the testimony of the Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears witness. Okay, He bears witness. Is this an audible voice? The Lord could do that. But I think this is the leading and the keeping of the Christian by the constant testimony and the assurances of pardon of Scripture. What is the voice of the Holy Spirit but loudly shouting from the 66 books that he's given to us? It's the testimony constantly of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but the second testimony is what? The Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Quite subjective, isn't it? If you continue on. The Holy Spirit is objective. He's intangible in his testimony outside of the scriptures. But what does it mean that he bears witness with our spirit? He's talking about your soul, your inner life, the spirituality of your conscience. And he's saying, Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit informs your conscience, your soul, that you know you belong to him. And you say, but pastor, isn't that the issue? Isn't that what I struggle with? Isn't that where I fall on and off of the tracks of my salvation? Don't I fail? And I will say, yes, friends, you do. However, you have a helper. It's not just the testimony of your spirit, but likewise, and also, and in addition to, it is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And you say, but how can I understand this? Well, I'll say this. This is how you knew you had faith in Christ in the beginning. I can't tell you you're a Christian. Your elders can't tell you you're a Christian. We can ask questions. We can examine your answers. But it is the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that you have faith in him. You began with this testimony. Paul is saying is that this is constant and it is daily and it is continual in the Christian life. Even if your part of the testimony is weak. And so, brother, sister in Christ, Paul is saying, even as you wage war against sin, you have every reason in the world, if you are embattled and sad and grieving over your sin, to have assurance that you belong to the Lord as one of his children. As you wage war. Not just after you've had a grand victory and you're waving the banner after the foe has been put down. That is wonderful for me, and it's wonderful for you, Christian, that it's not only how you feel, but it is joined with the testimony of the Spirit through the word of the Lord. Verse 17, we continue, and there is the reality of inheritance. The reality of inheritance. And Paul continues on without breaking thought. It's intimately connected with all the scripture here in this section. He says, and if children, if then children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. This is the language of inheritance. I don't know if you had the opportunity yesterday to see what I dare say 
It's the first time any of us in this room have seen, and that was the coronation of the now coronated and installed King of England. Maybe, maybe some of you were around for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, the longest reigning monarch of that nation. But that was a symbol of his inheritance. He gained what belonged to the former. What was Elizabeth's became his. What was owed to the house of Windsor and to all that came before him. The whole institution of the kings, not only of England, but Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. All of that became his. He inherited it. It was all given to him. I didn't get to watch the whole thing. I watched a clip, the investiture, where they put gowns on him. Much more wonderful than the black cloth that I wear. It was woven in gold. He had a wonderful crown fashioned for him. He had scepters, all this sort of stuff. All these wonderful things. This wonderful ceremony. A great testimony of the Christian faith that the whole world looked onto yesterday. But let me just say that inheritance is so much more than only the things that we receive. And that might be what you think of it. You inherited something from a family member that's passed. You inherited money, you inherited valuables, houses, or property. And that's all wonderful and it's usually pleasant. Sometimes you may have a family member that passes and leaves you a household full of junk and you've got to clear it all out. You think, oh great, thank you so much, right? You inherit things, but more than that, you inherit responsibilities. And what we saw, at least yesterday, was the inheritance of responsibilities. And you and I don't often think about this, but if you've ever inherited the debts of a loved one, you very well get this. But King Charles inherited titles, just like any noble would. He's no longer the Prince of Wales. Rather, he's the King of the United Kingdom, the King of England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And yes, he gets to wear a crown. And yes, he gets to live in palaces. And yes, his likeness is placed upon coins. And yes, he gets someone that clothes him and so on and so forth. The pomp and the circumstance of his office. But, as it has been said... To wear a crown is to become the caretaker of a nation. Responsibilities lay on his shoulders. So what is being said here from Paul? He's saying this, that if we are in Christ, we are heirs of the glories of And the blessings of God. All the stuff, all the blessings, the outpouring of his blood from his wounds, his death on the cross, and his wonderful river of unceasing grace to the Christian. You get all of that wonderful stuff. It's your belonging and your assurance. That's one aspect of your being his inheritor. Because friends, as Christians, we are his princes And his princesses. He is the high king of heaven and earth. And we are his children. The church his queen. His bride. 
So we receive all these things, but there's something else even more notable that Paul explicitly states here and that relates to his responsibilities that we have inherited. He says we are his heirs provided that we suffer with him. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Colossians 1.24, we are called to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What does it mean? It means if the world hated him, likewise it will also hate us. That as the world hates him and derides him, the world takes it out in his flesh. His flesh, his body, is the church. And if you're in Christ, you should just expect, Christian, that part of your inheritance is going to be to share in his sufferings as people hate him. That as the church is persecuted, it in itself is a strange, unique, inherited evidence that you belong to Christ. That's what Paul is saying. If you want one more evidence, Christian, it's the suffering. It's the suffering at the hand of persecutors. It is the suffering that you go through as you put sin to death because the Lord suffered as he put sin to death on the cross. This life will be blessed. It will not be easy. But in the end, it will be rest and glorious. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, I just encourage you, put sin to death. And don't let your sin become something that Satan used to testify to you that you don't belong to him. If you have the Spirit, you are already his. And you will continue to be his, provided you put sin to death and you continue and experience the suffering that he did. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for the scriptures. We praise you that they are given to us for our faith and for our life. Lord, we pray that you would help us to come to worship you. Oh, Lord, to receive Christ even more afresh as we come to the table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.